So if you will turn your Bibles and meet me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It reads like this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of our Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how he turned to God, uh, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, good evening, everybody. It is such a blessing to be able to be with you person to person instead of me standing behind my phone recording a video. I am praising God for the opportunity to be with you all, and I am looking forward so much to see what he is going to do with these next two years. I am truly blessed to be able to be with you all this evening. I do have to say, though, that these past three weeks have been some of the biggest change that I've experienced ever in my life. Moving to the world from the United States sounds easy enough, but there have been more bumps in the road than I could have ever begun to imagine. But I'm sure that I'm not the only one in this room to have experienced significant life change over the course of your lives. I'm sure that Each of you has experienced something that has changed every day of your life moving forward. From It could be something exciting like starting a new job or starting at a new school or the start of a new relationship or even the birth of a child. Or it could be something sad like the death of a loved one or the ending of a relationship. Each of these events changing the trajectory of our lives forever. Whether good or bad, we are always left wondering after this event, what comes next? Today we are going to be starting a brand new series in the book of 1 Thessalonians and asking ourselves over the course of this series, what comes next for the Christian? How is the Christian supposed to live? Where is the Christian supposed to find hope? We will be looking at these questions and many more over the course of this series. But today, we will be studying just the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. We will be looking at how the church, the Thessalonian church, was changed by the gospel. 
We will look to them as an example of how we as Christians are supposed to live and what we as the church are called to do. But before we begin studying the epistle of 1 Thessalonians, let us first come to understand the history of the Thessalonian church. So if you have your Bibles and you're planning on following along with me this evening, I want you to turn back a little bit to Acts chapter 17. We're going to briefly look back at how the Thessalonian church was founded. I swear, Hugh, I'm not taking this sermon from you. (laughs) I know you guys are in the book of Acts right now, but we'll just be reading it and understanding how the Thessalonian church came to be and the context in which the church is sitting in. So the first nine verses of Acts chapter 17 say this. It says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd." And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they had heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them Paul, on his second missionary journey, accompanied by Silas, was able to preach the gospel and lead a fair number of the, of the believers to Christ. Paul and Silas would set themselves up in the synagogue every Lord's Day and proclaim the good news of, Christ to, of Christ's life to the Jews. By God's grace, many were converted and came to faith in the Lord, but it was not without its cost. You see, the Jewish authorities became jealous and had Paul and Silas chased out of the city for claiming that Christ is their king. This turned the city hostile to not only Paul and Silas, but this new community of Christians that was setting up a church in Thessalonica. So within the first month that the church in Thessalonica was formed, the believers were already suffering from persecution. This helps show the genuineness of their salvation as they stuck to their newfound belief in God and completely forsake the idols that they had previously served. Despite their newfound conversion, they have experienced the power, the full power of the gospel and realized that they can no longer turn around and enter back into the world from which they came. Their lives have been changed, and there is no going back. So now that we have understood 
who the Thessalonian church is, what they were made up in. Let's jump into our passage and take this a couple verses at a time. So verses one through three of 1 Thessalonians chapter one. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, when we're beginning an epistle or a letter, we run into the introduction. In ancient times, the introduction of letters would begin with the author, in this case, Paul, Silvanus, which is the Romanized version of Silas, and Timothy, writing to his audience, the church in Thessalonica. But Paul doesn't simply address his audience as the church of the Thessalonians. He goes on to qualify the church as in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this may seem simple enough to all of us. We hear church and we automatically believe, yes, oh, that means in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I think Paul is trying to point out something different here. What is significant is Paul is making a clarification on exactly who he is writing to. Because back in ancient times, the Greek word that we have translated for church is the word ekklesia. Now, we may be familiar with this word ekklesia because we, we, we have it translated as church in our scriptures, but this word can also mean gathering. So this word, ekklesia, can be used in both religious and secular contexts. So instead of simply addressing the gathering of Thessalonians, Paul is qualifying the gathering as in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What I love about this introduction is it's so simple, yet it's so profound. This community of Jews and Gentiles would have never formed outside of the commonality of their salvation. The gathering of this church is not up in the air or ambiguous. The gathering of these believers is not because they have some shared or common worldly interest. The one commonality between all of them is that they have given their lives to Christ and put their faith in the Lord. This is a gospel community. Not a gospel plus fill-in-the-blank community. This is a gospel community solely set apart for God alone. And this is because the church itself is supposed to be set apart by the gospel alone. A church is a community founded by God through the preaching of the gospel and will always remain set apart because of its gospel roots. There may be some shared interests that connect people within the group, but that is not the reason they are gathering They're not gathering to go watch a football game together. They are not gathering because they have a same shared interest in a certain band or artist. They're gathering because the Lord has brought them together. Also, in this part of the passage, Paul describes the distinguishing marks of the church and what every church should be having as a result of their gospel roots. 
that being faith, love, and hope. The church, despite its persecution, remains faithful to God and believes that there is nothing that can hurt them because God is over all things. They love each other and the community in which they live despite suffering from persecution and they make the gospel known to the world around them. This is because they have hope for the future. They know that the Lord will come again in his appointed time to bring justice to this broken world. Faith, love, and hope are exactly how the church should be embodied past, present, and future. A church being set apart by the gospel should have these three attributes as evidence of the fruit that comes from our common salvation. And without these attributes, the church itself would not be embodying the gospel. That is because it is the foundation of our gathering. This evening, I would like to propose to you a couple of questions to analyze how you are doing in these three areas of faith, love, and hope. How are you doing with your faith in God? How are you doing with your love of others? And how are you doing with your hope in Christ? Where are you needing improvement? What do you need to give up to the Lord? so that you may trust in him more? What are you holding on to that is stopping you from loving your brothers and sisters inside of this church and in the community around us? And what is stopping you from hoping in the Lord and trusting in his deliverance? Continuing on in our passage, verses four and five say this. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. One of the greatest truths about the Christian life is knowing that our God in heaven has chosen the Christian for salvation. Now this may seem contrary to what our intellect, our own self would want us to believe. We as sinners want to believe that we have come to God on our own accord and taken the gift of salvation by ourselves. We can clearly see here in this passage, as well as in other passages all throughout scripture, like Ephesians 1 and Romans 8, that God has chosen us for salvation. This truth may seem scary to us, but when considering the richness of this truth, it is truly beautiful. The gospel of our salvation is made known to us by God alone. I'm currently reading this book, uh, Deeper, by Dane Ortland. I cannot recommend it enough. But as I was reading it, he describes in the chapter describing the person of Christ, he, he talks about how God regenerates our heart. And in this, in this subheading, he's talking about how Jesus saves. So I'd like to read from you a quote, a quote from this book. 
Ortland says, when we were running full speed the other direction, he chased us down, subdued our rebellion, and opened our eyes to see our need of him and his all-sufficiency to meet that need. We were not drowning in need of being thrown a life preserver. We were stone dead at the bottom of the ocean. He pulled us up, breathed new life into us, and set us on our own feet. And every breath we now draw is owing to his full and utter deliverance of us in our helplessness and death. Jesus saves. Knowing that the Lord is solely responsible for our salvation is quite comforting. We are able to experience the full depths of his grace, and knowing that paraphrasing Jonathan Edwards here, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. God then, being eternally gracious, made the effort to change our hearts so that we would truly behold him in his glory. This is one of the beauties in knowing that God is the one who makes the gospel known to us. Another wondrous truth about God being the one that makes the gospel known to us is that we can know that there will always be a possibility and and a certainty that our evangelism will be fruitful. Paul says himself in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This means that the non-believer will never be able to understand the things of God without the Holy Spirit's aid. Without God himself doing the work of salvation inside of us, our proclaiming the gospel would be in vain, as unbelievers would never accept the things of God. But therefore, Since we know that God is solely responsible for regenerating people's hearts, we can be assured that by the Spirit and through proclamation of his word that unbelievers will be brought to faith. Continuing on, verse six says this. It says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. When the Thessalonians started to understand the gospel and what their lives are like before Christ, they realized that they needed to make a 180 degree turn from where they were and start living a new life. The gospel causes us to be imitators of God, as we'll see exemplified here by the actions of the Thessalonians after their conversion. When a child is born... It needs to take the first couple of years of its life growing and learning how to live, move, and function as a human being. Around eight months of age, children imitate simple actions and expressions of others during interactions, such as clapping, waving, or giving a high five. As the child grows up, they start to imitate the people inside of their lives. At around 18 months of age, children imitate others' actions that they have observed during an earlier time, such as pretending to clean the house or use tools. And finally, at around 36 months, children reenact multiple steps of others' actions that they have observed at an earlier time. 
They start to play pretend, pretending to be the people that they know or the characters that they have seen on television or read in a book. Children imitate people so that they can learn how to function in the real world. It is no coincidence then that for the Christian, the theme of rebirth is used in our lives. When the believer is born again, they are starting a new life that is completely different from the life they once knew. Instead of embracing sin and idolatry, whether intentionally or unintentionally, the believer instead runs away from sin and towards the Lord. But because they have had no experience following God, they need somebody to imitate. And what better way to imitate those mature believers inside of the church? This should be first instinct for us here inside this church. Whenever a believer is born again, whenever someone becomes a follower of Christ, we should seek to put them under a mentor who will disciple them, encourage them, and correct them, and show them how to live a life honoring to God, just as children imitate their parents and those around them. This is exactly what the Thessalonian church was doing as they started to imitate Paul and Silas, as as Paul and Silas would imitate Christ. And this is exactly what we should be doing now as well. Now, Christian, I want to make something clear to you this evening. Imitating those who imitate Christ is not something that is reserved exclusively for the new believer. We, as believers, should be seeking to have people in our lives that we can look up to as examples of Christ-likeness and imitate them as they imitate Christ. Through this, We can be sanctified, we can be transformed, we can leave behind the sinful tendencies that have become habitual in our lives and instead embrace our Lord. Life change in this degree is not only reserved for the convert. Allow the gospel to change you and to shape you into becoming an imitator and reflection of Christ. This is also something that this is something that we should be seeking to do always, not in just the best of times. Even when we are surrounded by opposition, when the world looks down on us and persecutes us as believers, we should be seeking to imitate Christ in the direst of straits. Christ himself knows this suffering. He came became flesh and was tempted in the same ways that we were. We see that in Hebrews 4.15. Even in the darkest of times, even the, the Thessalonian church, despite being surrounded by persecution, right at the beginning of their Christian lives, continued to imitate Christ. And so we, as the church, need to continue to do that so that we can, can, we can see and continue to seek after the joy given to us by the Holy Spirit. Finally, 
the last part of our, of our passage today, verses seven through 10, say this. It says, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Once the the Thessalonians became believers, their entire lives were changed and not just by a small amount. The lives of these new believers had drastically changed. The believers made an about turn from their sin. They stopped worshiping the idols that surrounded them and instead turned to the one and only true God. But the act of this about turn, the act of running away from these idols was not something that was done in secret. The drastic life change of these believers was so evident that the entire area of Thessalonica and each surrounding region had heard of their conversion, have heard of how they have left these idols to serve the Lord and follow the gospel. This message of their change spread so far that Paul, would con- Paul, continuing on his missionary journey, would run into people who have heard of their drastic change. He wouldn't even have to begin saying anything because the culture and the people had already heard of what the Thessalonians had done before he could even say anything. The Thessalonians trust in the Lord so much that their testimony spread beyond what one individual person could have done by himself. And this is, this, is truly, um, this is truly amazing because even in the midst of persecution, the Thessalonians continued to remain faithful knowing that the Lord is going to return and deliver them from the wrath to come. Now, as Christians, we have gone through a very similar experience. Upon conversion, we have turned away from the idols that we used to serve and now serve the true and living God. Now is the time for us to act and make, make our faith in God known to the world around us. This is because the gospel is multiplied through the church. Once we have heard the gospel that is given to us by God and have been changed and transformed by it, we are, told, we are not told to simply sit on this teaching and store it up for ourselves. This grace that we have experienced is not to be selfishly hoarded. We need to be sharing the gospel with everyone around us so that they can hear about this amazing grace that saved wretches like us. We need to go out there and act in accordance with the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations and sharing the good news that we ourselves have benefited from so that others may benefit from this grace as well. Now, how do we make known the gospel? How do we make this gospel known to the world around us? 
The easiest way that we can make the gospel known to everyone here in Hoylake, here on the world, here in the UK, and through the world is through our actions. Remember those three attributes that I talked about earlier, faith, love, and hope. As a church, we need to be embracing these attributes. We need to be seeking to serve the community around us by showing them the grace and love that our God has shown to us. We as Christians need to be acting like our sin has been blotted out because the work of Jesus, because of the work of Jesus and not dedicating ourselves to the things of this world. So this evening, to close us up, I would like to challenge you to focus on the gospel. Look back on where you were before Christ before he has entered into your life and remember the deadness of your heart. Remember what it meant to have no hope on the future, in the future. But Christian, do not stop there. Remember what it was like to, to see Jesus for the first time. Recall the first time that you started to fully grasp the fundamental truths of the gospel and how it changed you. Remember the joy that it produced in you that you, have now, that you now have hope in eternity because Christ has granted you eternal security through his work. Christ is your life. And the good news of the gospel is the truth that you not only based your conversion on, but that you need to base your entire life upon. This is how we as the church can make the gospel known to the world around us if we base our entire lives around our salvation just as the Thessalonians did. If we do this, we are letting ourselves be transformed, be remolded, and be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. From there, we can go out and let the gospel be multiplied through us. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the truth of your gospel, that you became flesh and lived a perfect life here among your people, only to be put to an undeserving death. Through that sacrifice, You have allowed us to reconcile our relationship to you and be together with you again. Lord, I pray that we continue to live our lives based around the truths of the gospel. Lord, let us be reshaped by this truth. Let us seek to follow you and let every interaction, every action that we do, everything be shaped by our salvation. Let your spirit conform every part of our lives around who you are and who you've made us so that we may best serve and love you. Let our, testi- let our testimony of your work go out like a ringing bell to everyone around us. Let your name be known to all that we come in contact with so that your gospel can continue to change lives and be multiplied through us. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.